Absolutely. If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me uh, to the Old Testament book of Proverbs, chapter 15. And if you're using one of the black Bibles in the rack in front of you, it is page 567, 567. Uh, we've been uh, studying through the book of Proverbs. We began last week and we're going to continue this Sunday and for a little while longer. And if you remember from last week, we learned that wisdom, biblical wisdom, is really the intersection of two things. And this is important to understand. It's not wisdom unless you have both of these things intersecting. Uh, first of all, we have the instructions from God the instructions that are found in God's word and, and principally the instructions that are found in the book of Proverbs. That's where our focus is, Proverbs for, for a few weeks. And so we've got the instructions from God and it is wisdom when those instructions intersect with a life surrendered to Christ. And so if you have a life surrendered to Christ that studies and follows the instructions given in God's word, then you have a wise person. Now, one without the other is not wisdom. Uh, oftentimes, uh, lost people read the book of Proverbs for wisdom, and they certainly can gain some knowledge as they read the book of Proverbs, but it's not wisdom unless it is combined with a heart surrendered to Christ. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 2 that Christ is the, is the embodiment of wisdom, that he is the power of wisdom. It's sort of like having an extension cord that's not plugged into the wall. Uh, that extension cord may look okay, but it won't power your lamp. It won't power your computer. It won't, it won't produce any electricity because it's not connected to an electrical source. And so the, the instructions of God only have power in the life of a person who is surrendered to Christ. And so when those two things come together, we have godly wisdom. And so our goal in these weeks is to look into the book of Proverbs and to see some of the very specific instructions. And today we're going to get very, very specific to look at some of the specific instructions and then to combine them with a heart surrendered to Christ so that our lives can better reflect the honor and glory of God. And so today we're going to look at the subject of money. Now, when you talk about money in the church, people usually groan because they, uh, they think we're going to pass the offering plate again, and I promise you we are not. Uh, but the Bible has a great deal to say about money, and, and money is a, is, a, is a big issue. It, it, that's why the Bible speaks to it uh, as much as it does. And, and, and I think perhaps the best way to frame the seriousness of this issue is to look not first to the book of Proverbs, keep your Bible open there, but I wanna show you a verse on the screen that I think just tells us where it is uh, that we need to go and why this is so important. It is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10. Can you show us that verse? 1 Timothy 6, 10 says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now let's stop there. Does it say money is evil? Certainly money is not e evil. Money is amoral. It can be good or bad. But it says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. All kinds of bad things can come from a uh, mismanagement, a misunderstanding, a misprioritization of, of money. So for the, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered from the faith. 
That means for some people, money has become an obstacle in their walk with the Lord. And then it goes on to say, and some have pierced themselves with many griefs. You know people, I know people, there are people here in this room who because of their love for money, uh, they have uh, suffered many, many griefs as a result of that. And so the Bible tells us this is a very important, even spiritual issue. Now, your Bibles are open to Proverbs chapter 15. Let's, let's look at one verse there and we'll walk our way through the book of Proverbs this morning. Proverbs 15, 16 says this, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure with turmoil. Uh, the Bible says that wise living is of greater value than, than great treasure, that you'd be better off having wisdom than having treasure. Because if we have foolishness, then treasure will be a curse to us. Well, I, I want to convince you, if I can in the next few moments, of just how important this is. Because I think if you can understand how important, how dangerous, perhaps I should say, that this is, then we'll be ready to learn the wisdom of the Lord, uh, some simple wisdom for how uh, to best approach money. So why is this such a serious thing? Let me give you four or five reasons. Number one, it is serious because it can keep us from God. If, if we don't rightly approach the money that we've been entrusted with, uh, or the money that we may one day be entrusted with, if we don't rightly approach this, it can keep us from God. Uh, look with me on the screen or in your worship bulletin at Proverbs 30, uh, verses 8 and 9. Uh, the psalmist says this, Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food that I need. Otherwise, I might have too much and deny you, saying, who is the Lord? Or I might have nothing and still profaning the name of God. And so what the, what the writer of Proverbs says is, if, if I have too much money, I may not think I need the Lord, and I may walk in a different direction. If I have too much money, if I have put my security in my money, if I'm trusting in my money, then I, I may not turn to God. But if I don't have enough, if, I, if I'm lacking the money to meet my basic needs, then I, I may turn to sin, I may turn to stealing in order to get the things that I think I need. He says, don't let money, here's the gist of this passage, don't let money keep me from, from the Lord. We could find a lot of, uh, of biblical examples of this. I think about the rich young ruler in the New Testament, if you know that story, or the story of Zacchaeus, uh, both of whom um, had a stumbling block in their lives. It was money, and money kept them, at least for a while, from, from the Lord. And, and, and I've learned in my ministry that the two most difficult people to share the gospel with, do you know who they are? First of all, it is the extremely wealthy people. Because oftentimes people who are very wealthy, there's nothing wrong with being very wealthy, but oftentimes people who are very wealthy just don't think they need the Lord. They just don't think they need salvation. They have found a way, they have been resourceful enough, or they have been fortunate enough, or they have been hardworking enough that they've been able to take care of themselves up to this point, and it is hard sometimes to convince them of how desperately they too need the Lord. And so sometimes the hardest people to reach are the people who are very wealthy. And another group that's very hard to reach are, the, are those that are very poor. Uh, those that are very poor often think that they're hopeless. Uh, they often turn to um, 
to, to, to sin and, 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 and to stealing uh, in order to get the things that they think they need. And, and oftentimes it is very difficult to reach those people. So sometimes in their mind, all they can think about is how to get more money. And even when you talk to them about Christ, they're thinking about it in terms of finances, not in terms of salvation. See, one of the reasons why we need to know how to handle money is because if we don't know, it can keep us from God. Now, there's another reason this is important. Uh, if we mishandle money, it can become a substitute for God. Uh, sometimes uh, people will have so much money or have the potential to make so much money that uh, they don't think that they need the Lord. Let, let me tell you a little bit about how needs work. Our greatest needs are all spiritual. I mean, what I need most are, are things like forgiveness and uh, the, the peace of God in my life. What, what I need most are, are, are the assurances that God gives to us that, that we are loved and that we're walking with him. What, what I need most is spiritual strength to resist temptation. The, the things I need most are all spiritual things. The thing you, things you need most are spiritual things. But when we have a temporal need, I mean, when, when there is a financial need, our attention goes from the spiritual to the financial. That, that just calls our name. It just, it distracts us from what is most important. And if we don't manage our money well, if we don't manage our money according to the principles of God, then our money, whether we have a lot or not, the pursuit of that money can become a substitute for God. You, you know, there is a, a blessing and a curse that we have. Uh, I think about... Jesus's uh, instructions to pray uh, in what we call the Lord's Prayer, that the Lord would give us our daily bread. Have you thought about that? What does it mean, our daily bread? Well, when Jesus gave this instruction um, to pray this way, he, he initially gave it to people who, who, who had a need for daily bread. They, they lived in a culture uh, and they were uh, of a certain socioeconomic status that there was some question about whether or not they'd have enough bread to eat tomorrow. And so every day they would pray, Lord, give me my daily bread. Give me enough bread that I can live one more day. Now that would be a very difficult way to live, right? Uh, if, you know, I don't have a lot of money, but if, uh, if, if everything dried up today, okay, I've got enough food in my pantry <laughs> and I've got enough, uh, you know, cash in my wallet that I'm not going to starve anytime soon. Right, Don? I mean, we got enough that we can get by for a while. I, you know, praying for daily bread just doesn't have the same significance for me and it doesn't have the same significance for you. And I'm, I am thankful that I've got enough that I'm not worried about what am I going to eat tomorrow. But listen, that blessing is also a curse. It's, see, the people... Who, who had to pray every day in a strict, literal sense, Lord, give me my daily bread, they were learning that they had to be moment by moment dependent upon God. But you know, most of us, most of us are wealthy. Uh, probably everybody in here is wealthy. I mean, you compare ourselves, compare us to most of the people around the world and through history, we, we are wealthy people. We have, we have plenty to eat. We, we have safe homes. And even if it's cold outside, it's warm inside. And, and, and you know, we're, we're wealthy people. And, and because of our wealth, because I'm not worried about food for tomorrow and, and you're not worried about food for tomorrow, our, our security, our, our assurance 
if we're not careful, will come from something other than God. Uh, listen to what um, the book of Matthew says in chapter 19, verse 23. It says, Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter in the kingdom of heaven. Now, what is he talking about? How rich? That's my first question when I see that. Uh, how rich? Well, the, the same richness that all of us have. I mean, we, we're, we all fit into this. When it says it is hard for a rich person to be saved, that counts all of us, okay? You know, unless you just don't know what you're going to eat today, uh, you're rich. And so what does he mean when he says it's hard, it's difficult for a rich person to be saved? Well, because... We have so much stuff because we're not worried about what we're going to eat today or tomorrow. It is easy for us to lose sight of our daily dependence upon God. We need to know how to handle money because if we don't, it can become a substitute for God. Our assurance will be in our wealth and not in the Lord. The third reason why we need to know about money and the biblical Wisdom of money is because it can destroy our marriages. Uh, they say today that almost half of all marriages end in divorce. Now that number, you may read, just as an aside, is going down. And you would think that that would be reason uh, to cheer, right? The percentage of people getting divorced is going down. But it is going down for the wrong reasons. It's going down because many people just don't bother getting married anymore. So there are fewer divorces because there were fewer married people. And, and uh, the, those who are married have been married longer because they're not new people getting married. And you may not see that as much in uh, uh, East Texas uh, as, as you would in other parts of the country, but uh, marriage is becoming a thing of the past. But still half of marriages, almost half of all marriages end of divorce. And 80% of divorced people say that finances played at least a primary role in the disintegration of their marriage. We need to know what God's word says about money in order to safeguard our marriages. Number four, very quickly, it can lead us to do some unwise things if we mismanage money. And uh, on both sides of the, of the equation, uh, it, it can cause us to look to foolishness instead of work. Proverbs 13, 11 says, wealth obtained by fraud will dwindle but whoever earns it through labor will multiply it. Uh, we have too many people today hoping uh, to fund their retirement and the rest of life because they play the lottery instead of working hard. And so uh, if you mismanage your money, it can cause you to be foolish on that end. It can bring laziness, but also on the other end, foolishness by working. Proverbs 23, 4 and 5 says, don't wear yourself out to get rich because you know better. Stop. As soon as your eyes fly to it, it disappears, for it makes wings for itself and flies away like an eagle to the sky. What it, what it says is you don't need to be working all the time, neglecting your family and your spiritual responsibilities in order to get rich, because all of that wealth that you think is going to bring security will fly away in the end. Number five, very quickly, we need to know what God's word says about money because it can keep us, mismanagement can keep us from serving the Lord. You know, there's some people who, who can't serve the Lord because they're just too busy with all of their toys. They're just too busy with uh, 
uh, with, with all their hobbies and their vacations and their vacation homes. And there's nothing wrong with any of those things, right? I mean, all of those things can be a, you know, a way to enjoy the blessings that God has given to you unless those things become your focus instead of serving the Lord. And I know some people who can't serve the Lord because of all the toys that they, that they have, but it can also uh, keep us from serving the Lord if we have too little, too little. Uh, I know people who have been called by the Lord to go on missions around the world, but they were unable to go because their debt was too high. Um, what a tragedy. I, I know people who can't spare time uh, to serve in their church because they're, they're working too much in order to catch up from, 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 a, from a lack that is a result of not spending money in a godly way. I know people who can't give financially to the ministries that they love and to honor the Lord because they have not managed their money. So this is a serious subject. And what I want to do in just the few minutes that we have, I want to give you from the book of Proverbs six quick commands, six instructions that, that the Bible says are the outline of how we ought to manage our money. Now, if you're surrendered to Christ, I mean, here's why this is good. If you're surrendered to Christ and you take these six simple commands, instructions from God, it'll make you wise about your money. Now, I'm not a financial advisor and I don't pretend to give out advice in those areas, but I'm a Bible teacher. And I think that most of the problems that people have with money and life they have too much or they have too little or they mismanaging what they have is because of these basic six things that the book of Proverbs tells us that we must do. So let's go through them. Number one, don't be lazy. I mean, you knew that was coming, right? Don't be lazy. Proverbs 10:4. idle hands make one poor, but diligent hands bring riches. The apostle Paul said it this way, if you don't work, you don't eat. You know, we live in a culture where uh, we're training our young people, I'm afraid, to always have their hand out, to, uh, to give me more, to give me more. And people today want to receive without working, but the Bible says it's important to work. It's very important to work. You, you need to teach your kids what a work ethic is by working. You, you, you need to, you, you need to, Count for something in this, in this society by rolling up your, your sleeves and going to work. And whether you work inside the home or outside the home, you'll work where the Lord leads you to work. But the Bible says, don't be lazy. That's important that we have safety nets as a church and as a culture, and we do, for those people who uh, fall on difficult times. But the principle still remains, we must work. And so the first Instruction is just that, don't be lazy. Number two, we need to learn contentment. Now this is the hardest of the six, but we must learn contentment. Now, you know what contentment is? It's a skill, uh, just like the skill of uh, throwing a football or the skill of playing golf or the skill of uh, frying eggs. <laughs> it's a skill uh, that, that can be learned and it's the skill of being satisfied with what you have, of being satisfied with what you have. I think it's life's, one of life's most important skills. 
We need to learn to be satisfied with what we have. And I think we all struggle with this. Do you struggle with this? Your pastor struggles with this. It's hard sometimes to be satisfied with what we have. Uh, So on Friday, I finally got around to upgrading, updating uh, my family's cell phone plan. So um, I I have a cell phone here in Nacogdoches, but the rest of my family has uh, had cell phones uh, still in Ohio. And on a plan in Ohio, it was time to move them uh, to Nacogdoches. And so um, I look at all the different phones that are available, and uh, there's a new phone that just came out, just came out this week. In fact, if you have it, I'd like to see it. It's a new fancy phone, and and, uh, so I really... I uh, wanted to get uh, a whole bag of those fancy phones. And so I was, I was looking at them. I even put them in my shopping cart uh, online as I was uh, going through this process. Thankfully, AT&T's website stinks. <laughs> and so I, I couldn't actually purchase them. I tried to purchase them. Maybe it was the Lord that kept me from purchasing them. And so then I get somebody on the phone and they're trying to help me out. And they say, you know, by the way, there is a cheaper version of this, a different phone. And it's buy one, get one free. I thought, oh. Now, obviously, that's the, you know, for us, and I'm not saying if you've got the fancy phone that you've done something wrong, but uh, for us, that obviously is the, is the better thing. But I, I was just, I, I was ticking off in my mind all the features, and I don't even know what they are, that the new phone has that, uh, you know, just half two features. I don't know how I could survive without those features. And and I wrestled with myself and wrestled with myself and uh, finally, you, you know, and, and I really can't even brag on myself because I, I bought one one step down, but you know, there was one one step down below that and there was one even one, so I mean, I, I, I still wasn't very content, but I was more content than I could have been. So uh, I mean, it was a small victory. Um, you know, they, uh, they spread that out for 30 months. And so you think, well, you know, it's just a little bit more and you figure it up per month. And then I started figuring up what it would cost per day. And, <laughs> you know, it's easy to justify our discontentment, but you will never be happy with what you have until you learn to be content with what you have. There'll always be a nicer phone. There'll always be a fancier car. And I'm not against people, and the Bible's not against people having very, very nice stuff. But, but, but the key is, you, you, what I'm saying is, you can have nicer stuff and still be miserable about your stuff, or you can, have, you can have a few steps down and be content about your stuff. We must learn the skill of contentment. Proverbs 15, 16, and 17 says this, better a little with the fear of the Lord then great treasure with turmoil, better a meal of vegetables where there is love than a fattened ox with hatred. It is better off to have less and be content than to have more and be discontent. Ecclesiastes 5.10, the one who loves silver is never satisfied with silver. And the one who loves wealth, not the one who has wealth, but the one who's always trying to have more wealth, the one who loves wealth is never satisfied with income. This too is futile. I worked with a worship pastor one time. That's why I keep my eye on uh, Andre over here, a worship pastor at a church I served in in Mississippi. I was an associate minister, and he was the worship pastor. And um, his first name was Mike. And a great worship pastor, great singer. Um, and uh, he was, so far as I knew at that time, the richest man I had ever met. And I, I thought he was the richest man I'd ever met because uh, he just spent money just lavishly. I mean, he was always spending money, crazy money. And he took me to restaurants that I didn't even know existed. 
And I remember the first time we were, um, I was in Jackson, Mississippi. He was in Jackson, Mississippi, both of us for different events. And he told me to meet him at a restaurant. And I said, no, I never heard of this restaurant. I went to the restaurant for lunch. And, and, um, and so I'm, I look at the menu and I quickly recognize this was before everybody had credit cards in their wallet. And I, I knew I don't have enough money to pay for anything on this menu. <laughs> And I didn't, I didn't know enough to assume that he would pay for it. I, I remember excusing myself to go to the restroom and I went out to my car. I had about 30 bucks in my wallet, but the cheapest thing was like $35. And uh, this is for lunch and, and this was a long time ago. And so I remember going out to my car and I was looking under the seats. I was getting changed. <laughs> and uh, of course he paid for the meal. Richest guy, richest guy, or what I thought richest guy I ever knew. Now. Uh, a couple of years after that, he was arrested for mail fraud. Uh, he he uh, on the side was a uh, was a money manager, and uh, he um, had a little Ponzi scheme going, and uh, that Ponzi scheme paid for many a lunches uh, for me, and so I was somewhat appreciative of it. But it uh, put him in in prison. But but I remember here here's the point part of the story I want to tell you. I remember walking by his office uh, one day at the church and I could tell he was frustrated, exasperated. And so I just went in and said, Every, you know, Mike, everything okay? And, and I didn't know what it meant then. This was before the uh, arrest for mail fraud. Um, but he said, uh, you know how to have $15,000 a month worth of bills? I thought, well, that's an odd question. I said, no, I don't know how to have that. No, let me, I said it wrong. He said, do you know how to have $20,000 a month worth of bills? And I said, no, no, sir, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, go get a job that pays $15,000 a month. And, and what he was saying is, uh, you know, he, he made a lot of money, you know, for however. Um, but as his income went up, his outgo went up. Here I was, a youth pastor, making 150 bucks a week. And I had more than he had. I mean, I was, what I'm saying is that it's not the amount of money you have, it is the contentment that you have. You, you, you could put a couple of zeros by, uh, added onto your net worth, but without contentment, you'll still be miserable. We must learn contentment. Well, what are some of the enemies to contentment? Do you know? One of the enemies to contentment is creative shopping. Uh, have you ever just, um, I, I guess here in Nacogdoches, you, you pull up Amazon, uh, or, or maybe there are some places around here that you can go shopping, and you don't need anything, you just start looking. And the more you look, what do you discover? There are some things you didn't even know existed that you just absolutely have to have. Uh, I, I tell you, one of the things that um, uh, makes remodeling a house really difficult, we just remodeled a house is uh, watching all of these shows about remodeling a house, right? Because you find all of these things that you didn't even know they were things, but now you just can't live without those things. So creative shopping will ruin your contentment. Coveting will ruin your commitment. Imagining what life would be like if you had what somebody else had that will ruin your contentment. Credit, credit cards ruin your contentment. Uh, it is uh, much easier to learn contentment when you will only spend the money that you have. When you have the capability of spending money that is not yours, it makes contentment much more difficult to learn. So how can you learn contentment? How can you build contentment? Three quick things. Number one, give. There's just something about writing a check every month or doing it electronically, however you do it, 
and giving away a significant part of your income that changes your heart and teaches you to be content. You can learn to, li to live off what you have and like it if you'll give away a significant part of that every month or every week. Uh, another way is to go. Go on a mission trip. Go work with people who, uh, who, who have much less than you do. Uh, go and, and, and work with people who don't know how they're going to eat tomorrow or don't know how to provide basic medical care. It'll teach you commitment. And third, be thankful for what you have. Express thanksgiving every day for how God has blessed you. And that'll be the beginning of contentment. Well, command number three, we need to avoid borrowing money. Now, I told you this was specific, but we'll be no more specific than the Bible. Proverbs 22, 7 says this, the rich rule over the poor and the borrower is a slave to the lender. The Bible sp speaks strongly against borrowing money in order to simply live. You know, we all get upset when we hear about the government spending more money than it gets, right? I mean, we're all against that, or hopefully you're against that. And when you hear these things about the government spending trillions of dollars more than it brings in and, uh, and just passing that debt on to our kids, we're furious about that. But, 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 but most of the people who are complaining about that do the same thing in their homes. We just do it on a little bit smaller scale. They say that the typical person in America lives on 105% of what they make every year. It's because we're borrowing money to live. Now, let me tell you what, what is going on in your mind when you borrow money, when I borrow money. First of all, we're saying that we need more than what God has given to us, okay? And so, you know, you look at your furniture and uh, you think you need a new couch and you don't have enough money for a new couch, but it's uh, 90 days, same as cash at the couch store. And uh, pardon me if you own the local couch store, <laughs> I'm not trying to hurt your business, but uh, you know, it's 90 days, same as cash at the couch store, which uh, really means you're going to pay twice as much for the couch that you thought you were going to pay. And, and so you decide that you're going to borrow money for the couch. What you're saying in your mind and your heart is, I have needs, specifically a new couch, that the Lord has failed to provide for in my life. That's what we're saying. When we spend money that we don't have, we're saying that I have, the, I, I have needs the Lord has not met in my life. We're also saying this, God doesn't know best what our needs are. And God said he would provide for my needs, but God doesn't understand that I need something. I need that new car. I need that new telephone. We're perhaps saying that God has failed to provide for our needs and he's forcing us to take matters into our own hands. Or maybe we're saying if God doesn't come through the way that we think he should have by providing enough money for us to get the new couch, then we'll just find another way. Or perhaps we're saying just because today's income is sufficient to make our debt payments, tomorrow's will be as well. We're assuming that when we run our budget and we can afford to pay the payment now, we're assuming that nothing will change in our lives and that we will be able to continue to make the payment. And that's presuming upon the Lord. We're presuming that circumstances won't change, that our health will still be good, that we'll keep our present job, that our salary will keep up with inflation, and that God won't direct us to another job with a lower salary, or he will not call upon us to give sacrificially in a greater way. We're assuming all of those things when we borrow money. Now, debt is not always a bad thing, 
And uh, certainly when you're buying a house or you're buying something that will increase in value, uh, debt is not always a bad thing. But the debt that tends to cause us problems is when we buy things that we don't have to have that decrease in value, the Bible is very clear that the borrower is slave to the lender. Uh, I, I can tell you, I, I used to do a lot of financial counseling and just don't have time to do those kinds of things any longer, but uh, uh, you used to meet with church members every week and, and do financial counseling. And, and, uh, and, and I can tell you that what causes the problems in marriage is, uh, is, is, is when there's uh, $1,200 worth of car payments and, and $700 in credit cards uh, for clothes that have been purchased and, and there's $500 a month on, on um, consumer loans for uh, furniture and, and you add all that up and, and, and you have somebody who's paying out half their income on things that decrease in value and, and it causes problems in their marriage and it pro- causes problems in their spiritual life and it and, and, and the Bible is serious when it teaches us to avoid borrowing money. Well, number four, let's go through these quickly. We need to live by a budget. Proverbs 27, 23. Know well the condition of your flock and pay attention to your herds. It means you ought to know what you have. You ought to know what's coming in and you ought to know what's going out. I can tell you as I used to do this financial counseling that the people who were in financial difficulties were generally the people who did not have a budget. And you'd say uh, in the counseling appointment, well, tell me about how much do you spend every month on food? I don't know. Well, tell me how much do your utilities add up to? I don't know. Well, tell me. It's those people that were in the greatest financial difficulty. Some of us just need to buy a Dave Ramsey book. Do you know who that is? If you don't, you should. Dave Ramsey, just uh, uh, don't put it on your credit card, but go to Amazon and buy a Dave Ramsey book, and he'll teach you how to budget your money in a biblical fashion. Well, there's more to say about that, but I'm running out of time. Let's look at number five. We need to save money. Uh, no matter how much you make, a wise person will live off less than that. The Bible says in Pro- Proverbs 21:20, in the house of the wise are stores of choice food and oil, but a foolish man devours all he has. Now what that verse tells us is that no matter how much you make, this isn't a function, this isn't for rich people or for middle people or for poor, this is for everybody. That a wise person, according to this verse, will always have extra. And a foolish person will always spend all that he has. Let's have extra. Now I know somebody will say, well pastor, you don't know my situation. There's no way I could have extra. There's no way I could save. Well, when we're saying that, what we're suggesting is that there's nobody in America who successfully lives off less money than we do. Well, certainly there are people who live off less money. And if your salary got cut by 10%, you would find a way to survive. Let us be obedient to the instructions of Scripture and learn to save while we can. And then number six, we need to give. And so I told you it wasn't a message about giving, but uh, it's, it's a message about how to wisely manage our money. And a part of that is giving. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10 says, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first produce of your entire harvest. So it says to give, and then your barns will be completely filled and your vats will overflow with you wine. If we give, God will always bless the man, the woman who gives. If we give, let me tell you some of the reasons we should do that. Number one, it's a command from the Father. Uh, This isn't an option. This is a command. We are told to give. 
Secondly, it changes your heart. We talked about uh, contentment a moment ago. One of the greatest ways to have contentment is just to give something away. If you'll give away 10% every month, I'm telling you, it will create contentment that you've never known. You can, you've heard people say this before, but there's great truth in this. You can be happier with 90% than you ever could have with 100%. Because it's not a matter of how much you have. It's a matter of how content you are with what you have. That, that, that's, that's, that's not the only reason to, to tithe. But I can tell you in my life, I am happier with, with, with my salary minus a tithe or more than, than I would be with all of it. We, we must give because it changes our heart. Uh, it, it also makes an eternal difference in the lives of others. When we give, it makes an impact in others' lives. It pleases the Lord. It honors the Lord. And it brings the blessings of the Lord into our lives. Now, how, how could the Lord, who is author of the Bible ultimately, have justified, think about this, the fact that the Bible says, the Bible speaks about money two times more often than it speaks about faith and prayer combined. Take all the verses in the Bible that give us wisdom about money, and you take all the verses in the Bible that give us wisdom about faith and prayer, you add those together, the Bible says twice as much about money as it does about faith and prayer. If you just look at what Jesus said, Jesus said more about money than he did about heaven and hell combined. Now why is that? Because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we're going to be wise Christians, that doesn't just mean that you read your Bible every day. It doesn't just mean that you come to church. It doesn't just mean that you listen to Christian music. It doesn't just mean that you serve in the preschool. If we're going to be wise Christians, our Christianity must filter down into our management of our money so that our money says to the world, the way we manage our money says to the world that we trust the Lord and that he's worthy of our honor. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Father, help us to be wise Christians, not just in the things that we would label spiritual, but help us to be wise Christians in all the ways that we live. And we pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me tell you what's going to happen. I'm going to ask our deacons, if they would, to go and prepare the Lord's Supper. And uh, they are going to, uh, to do that, and they will come back and bring it to us uh, in just a moment. Uh, while they're doing that, I want to share a couple of things with you. This is such an important time in our worship service when we get an opportunity to uh, worship the Lord in this special way. So let me talk for a moment about the Lord's Supper. Uh, first of all, uh, we should prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. And we do that, first of all, by taking the Lord's Supper willingly. Uh, this is not a duty. This is a delight. Uh, this is something that while we, we approach it very reverently, it shouldn't be like going to a funeral. And uh, I know we're quiet and, uh, and we're focused and we don't talk. Of course, we want to be reverent as our, uh, 
as our men come on and pass out our bread. Just hold on to it when you receive it. Um, so we, we certainly want to be reverent as we take the Lord's Supper. But let's remember that this is not a duty. This is a delight. This is something that we should look forward to. It's not merely a command for us to obey. It is a blessing for us to enjoy. And so we anticipate the Lord's Supper. The second thing I, I think we should do if we're going to be prepared for the Lord's Supper is um, we must take the Lord's Supper worthily. Now, there are some harsh warnings in Scripture about how we might take the Lord's Supper in, a, in an unworthy manner. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty seven, Paul writes, So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. And so he tells us that there is a wrong way, there is a wrong attitude by which we can take the Lord's Supper. It says in the next verse, let a person examine himself in this way and let him eat the bread and drink the cup. So it says that before we do this, we, we ought to stop and we, we must examine ourselves. Examine ourselves. We'll talk about that in a moment. And then the next passage, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine 29 says, for whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body he eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many are sick and ill among you and many have fallen asleep. The Bible says that because some people don't have the right attitude when they take the Lord's Supper, uh, that it is, uh, it, is, it is something that is disciplined in their lives and they suffer uh, because they have taken the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. So how do we take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner? Well, let me share. First of all, we must remember that the Lord's Supper is only for those who've been redeemed. The Lord's Supper is a celebration of those who are in Christ, who, who have an assurance of their salvation, who know that there's been a time in their life when they've put their faith and trust in Jesus and what he's done for them on the cross, that they've trusted him, that they have been saved, that they're children of God. So to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner means that it is, it is taken by those who are redeemed. Secondly, to take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner, we must understand that it is for those who have, who have been reconciled. The Bible says that if you have something against your brother in Christ, if you're harboring anger in your heart, if you've sinned against someone and has, haven't sought their forgiveness, then you shouldn't take the Lord's Supper until you do that. Uh, the Bible is very adamant about that. It says that if, that if there's some broken relationship in your life, then don't take the Lord's Supper. Make, make fixing that relationship, make asking for forgiveness higher priority than, than taking the Lord's Supper. It is for those who have been reconciled with the people around them. And number three, it is for the repentant. It is for those who have confessed their sins to the Lord. The Lord's Supper is not for those who have never sinned, for we've all sinned. But it is for those who have confessed their sin to the Lord. I know in my study before the services began, I spent some time just making sure that there were no unconfessed sins in my life. 
And before you take the Lord's Supper, you too need to make sure that there are no sins in your life that you have failed to confess and repent of before the Lord. And so it's a serious thing, but the Lord's Supper is meant for us to enjoy. Let me tell you how you enjoy the Lord's Supper. Uh, we enjoy the Lord's Supper because, first of all, we enjoy our forgiveness in Him. You know, the Lord's Supper looks back. It looks back to the time that Jesus shed His blood for us. And that's what the, the elements of the Lord's Supper represent, that Jesus has, in the past, shed His blood for us so that we can have forgiveness of sins. Isn't it wonderful that we stand before the Lord absolutely forgiven? That no guilt is over us. That there's no condemnation for our sins. And so let us enjoy the Lord's Supper by saying as we take this, thank you, Lord, for your sacrifice for my sins. Secondly, we enjoy the Lord's Supper because we enjoy our fellowship with him today. And so the Lord's Supper looks back to the time that Christ died, but it looks to the present. Because as we do this, the Lord is with us. The Bible says where two or three are gathered, that he is right here in our midst. And so as we partake the Lord's Supper, he is here and we can celebrate his presence. I think about uh, the, the passage in Revelation chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, where the Bible says that Jesus knocks on the door of our hearts, seeking to come in and fellowship with us. And, and so... We know that he is here and shares this fellowship. And then finally, we enjoy the Lord's Supper because we look to the future when we'll celebrate this with him face to face. You know, the Lord's Supper is connected to the Passover meal that would be celebrated in Jewish homes. And in Orthodox Jewish homes, one of the things they would do is when they would set the table, they would put an extra chair out. And that extra chair was to remind them that they were waiting for the Lord. In fact, one of the activities that they would do with their children is they would have them go to the door and look to see if the Messiah were coming. It was a way to remind everybody that we wait for the day that the Messiah will return, that we'll be at home with the Lord, and that we'll celebrate the cup with him. And so as we do this now, we look forward to the day that we will do it with him together. And so the Bible says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, at the conclusion of the Feast of Passover, Jesus took the bread and having blessed it, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Let's eat. John 6, 58, Jesus says, this is the bread that came down from heaven it is not like the manna that your ancestors ate and they died, but he who eats this bread, he shall live forever. And so while the bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us, the cup and the juice represent the blood of Christ that was shed for us. The Bible says that on that same night, our Lord, after the Passover meal, took the cup and having blessed it, he gave it to the disciples and says, this is my blood which was shed for you. Let me pray. Father, 
as we celebrate what you have done for us through Jesus. May we offer our lives as a token of our thank you, our thankfulness for your love and your sacrifice. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Hebrews 9.22, the Bible says, according to the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And in 1 John 1.7, the Bible says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. 1 Corinthians 11.26 says, for as often as you eat this bread, and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. I want to ask you to stand. I want to say a brief prayer. Then I want us to sing one final song about the blood of Christ. Father, remind us of how special it is to be able to celebrate as your children this peculiar ceremony that reminds us of the great sacrifice of Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing.